Well, my youngest daughter, Shiloh, uh, her number one kind of love language is physical touch. She reminds me a lot of this guy right here. Who's this? Who is it? Olaf, right. Uh, And she loves warm hugs. And uh, Shiloh is the kind of person that likes to cuddle. She likes to tickle and be tickled. She likes to sit real close to us uh, wherever we're at and even when we're eating. And when I became a, a parent, I wasn't so used to her being so close to me. And um, it became something that was uh, kind of difficult because when we would eat dinner, she would be real close. And when I ate dinner growing up as you know a kid, it was grub time. Like you just focused on your food and kind of got your arms out like that so no one else would get something from you, okay? And uh, Shiloh, though, she loves to be able to be real close to us. And let me tell you kind of uh, the experience that I've seen with this. So uh, a few weeks ago, we went to Puerto Vallarta, and uh, it's a Mexican restaurant here in town. And while we were eating, uh, I noticed that when we got seated, I was uh, sitting here. Oh, by the way, uh, which one do you think Shiloh would choose since physical touch is their number one love language? A table or a booth? Yeah, booth. Every single time we have to go to a booth. So we're in this booth and we sit down and I'm sitting here and there's like space between us. And then they're shy. And we sit down and I'm like, oh, this is good. You know, I got my room. You know, we're all good. Then they bring the chips and salsa out, and it comes out. And all of a sudden, I notice she gets a little bit closer. And uh, we eat some chips and salsa. They take our order, and then they bring our food out. And by that time, she is what I call a straddler. She is right up against my leg, as close as she can. Her side is against my side. And I can't eat, like, with the right hand. Someone said, what do you do, eat left-handed? Yes, that's what I do. And so she's there, and so we give the prayer, and after the prayer, she looks up at me, and she goes, Daddy, I love being close to you. Now, here's the point to all of that. God loves to be close to you. He loves to get closer and closer and closer to you. In fact, you might remember last week, we had this illustration that in the Old Testament, when God first had this image of wanting to get closer to his people, he came to the people in a cloud. But he said, being in a cloud is not close enough. I'll actually come to a mountain. And he came to Mount Sinai and God was close to his people. But he said, that's not enough. I'll come into a tent, a tabernacle. My presence will actually be there and we'll be close. And finally, uh, he takes them to a promised land. And one day David's there and he looks around this guy who was a king. And he said, everyone has a house except God. And so they build this temple where the presence of God would be connected and people connect with them. But that wasn't close enough. God said, no, 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 no. I want to get closer than even that. And so over 2,000 years ago, he came to us into a little town of Bethlehem. And it was there that he came in a manger. And they gave him the name Jesus, which means God saves. But one of his names was Emmanuel, that God is with us, that that's what happened. God actually left heaven. He came downstairs to come and to be with us. Now today, I want to tell you that there's something about God, though, that you may not have realized. And it's that God is more than just with us. He's actually for us. He's like, For you, and this kind of leads us to our big idea this morning, and it's this. God is not just with us, God is for us. He's not just with us like in the car, but he's actually cheering us on saying, what can I do for you? And this is your first fill-in, either in your program or online. 
Now, I think most of us, we kind of understand this conceptually. We're like, oh, yeah, God's for us, you know, and that's nice, and I enjoy it. It feels good. But it seems kind of disconnected from much of reality. Because the truth is, there's times in our life when we're going through that we actually feel alone and that God isn't there. Some of you might be experiencing it this Christmas. You're going through a divorce and you feel alone or your kids have moved off to college and you feel alone or maybe a loved one has died and now you're here and you feel alone. And so every time you hear this God with us or God for us, you're just wondering, I'm not so sure. And how does that kind of work? I remember hearing a story one time about uh, a guy by the name of Neil Armstrong. I'm sure some of you have uh, uh, read his story before. And he was in a group of journalists, and one of the journalists asked the question, what is the farthest journey you've ever went on? And everybody who was there assumed that he was going to say, oh, you know, when I went to the moon. But instead, this is what Neil Armstrong said. The farthest journey that I've ever been on before took 18 inches. It was the difference distance from my head to my heart. It was when I learned about God and came to faith in Christ. Today, I want you to know that the God of all creation, the God of all the universe, He is for you. He doesn't just sit idly beside you. He's actually saying, whatever's going on in your life, I want you to know that I am for you. How do we know this? Well, one day, Jesus was teaching. It's actually a passage we looked at uh, in uh, November. And this is what Jesus said. He said, I have come that you may have life and have it to the, what's it say? Full. Another uh, translation says abundantly. That Jesus said, when I came, I came with this story to this world to proclaim to all of you that God is for you. And he wants your life to flourish. He wants you to have all of the things of life that create joy and peace and happiness to you. Jesus said, this is the whole reason why I left heaven to come to earth. And then Paul, a guy who wrote close to half of the New Testament, kind of builds on this idea. And he says this. He says, if God is for us, then who can be against us? So you have Jesus saying, hey, the reason why I came was to give you a flourishing, full life. And then Paul says, the thing you need to know is that God is for you all the time. He's not against you. Well, Jesus goes on to say, though, that in the overflow of me trying to fill up your life with good things, I need to let you know that there is a thief. And this thief actually comes, and this is what this thief does. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Now, if you think about it, it's like a progression. There's momentum to this. Um, If I steal something, I take it for myself. If I kill it, I want to end it. If I destroy it, I want it to be totally out of existence altogether. And Jesus says that he came, that you would have a flourishing life, a full life, a joy-filled life. But he says there is a thief, and that thief comes to try to steal your joy and kill your happiness and destroy who I created you to be. Now, for many of us, when we hear this idea that, oh, God is for us, it kind of is something that just kind of stays out in the atmosphere. We're like, oh, yeah, yeah, God's for me. It's almost like a greeting card. Hey, God's for me. Good, good, glad, you know. So the problem is, is though, that I don't think many of us believe it. Because if we did, we would walk through life with less burden and more joy, and there wouldn't be so many thieves 
taking things away from us. So for the rest of our time, I want to talk about four ways in which God is for you even when you're going through a tough time. And some of you are experiencing that now. The first way is this. God is for you in your fears. God is for you in your fears. David, the greatest king of the Old Testament, uh, write some of the most comforting words, maybe in all of Scripture in Psalm 23. In fact, on Wednesday, I had a graveside of a buddy of mine whose mom had uh, died, and the family was kind of contentious with one another, and he was concerned about it. But the good thing was it was like 21 degrees with a wind chill of about, you know, 7 degrees. And so even when people are mad at each other, they want to get done quickly. And so I stood up, and one of the scriptures that I read was the 23rd Psalm, and you see this family that has some contentiousness, and all of a sudden you see them starting to cry because of the comfort that comes from it. But the thing about this psalm also is that there's not just this sense of comfort, but also there's angst, and there's some pain here, and there's some desperation in it as well. And you may be familiar with it. It reads this way. The Lord is your shepherd. He's your shepherd. Whose shepherd is he? Yeah, he's my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right path for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. Because why? Let's all say this together. For you are with me. You're with me. Your rod and your staff, they actually comfort me. Folks, for David, he understands that this God of the universe that is gigantic is for him. And he wants everyone to know that he is my shepherd. Sheep are dumb. Sheep do bad things. Sheep walk away. And David says, no matter what, he's still my shepherd. And he goes ahead of them, and he protects them, and he leads them, and he guides them. And even when he finds himself in the darkest of valley, in dark evil, in depression, and being overwhelmed, he says, I will fear no evil because you're with me. Because you are there. You're guiding me. You're leading me. Sometimes you actually have to pick me up and carry me. You know, folks, I think for many of us, we almost get paralyzed in fear. I think more than anything else, you name it, whatever you want to name it. But when it comes right down to it, it's, it's fear. And it grows within us. I, I mean, fears all around us. They advertise to you all the time. You know, I was looking at this, uh, uh, this ad, 31 trendy gifts. If you don't have it, you should be fearful. 31. So I bought my wife two. You know what I mean? I just, I couldn't do all 31, but, you know, did my best to get two, you know. And, um, and there's just fear. There's fear in politics. There's fear in religion. There's fear in... Everything that's around us, it's advertised. But I wonder what it would look like if everyone in this auditorium walked out these doors today and we said to ourselves, as I walk through my day, the Lord is my shepherd, so I will not fear. And David just had this kind of profound belief that he said that I'm not going to fear because he is my shepherd, he's with me, and I have This confidence that the God of the universe can take care of anything that I'm going through. David goes on to say this in uh, Psalm 34.4. Let's read it all out loud together, all of us in one voice. Let's read it out loud. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from some of my fears. Oh, oh, okay. Because this is what happens is that sometimes we read it, some of my fears. God, you can do some of these things, 
but I'm going to take these things myself and I'm going to worry and I'm going to fret and I'm going to struggle because this is it. And he's like, no, 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 no. I can take all of your fears. I can deliver you from all of them. I have that ability to do it. Now, this is the truth about Chris Bunch. Sometimes I can read that scripture and I can be like, yeah, that's me. I can do anything because he's delivered me. I'm good. And then there's other times I'm over here in the corner in the fetal position and I'm scared. I'm just a little scaredy cat. Now, I'm sure for all of you, you're not like that. You're a people of faith who walk through every day. You have no fears whatsoever. But I, on the other hand, I go from those two extremes. So this is my question for you this morning. What are you most fearful of this Christmas? What is the thing in your life right now that you're most afraid of? Maybe it's a broken relationship and you haven't seen this person since last Christmas, but you know they're coming to the family gathering and you're going to have to confront that. Maybe there's a fear that you have that you have a broken relationship with an ex or with your kids or somebody else. And what you're scared about is if I take the first step, how will it come out? If I apologize first, what will take place? Maybe it's a coworker or a boss and you know you need to stand up to something, but you're afraid. Maybe it's a fear that you can't be loved enough and so you just keep living a life removed from other people. Maybe it's a hidden fear. Maybe for some of you, your greatest fear is actually having to go through this Christmas without a loved one for the first time. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a pervasive kind of sin that nobody else knows, but you know what it is, and it's ruining your life. Maybe for others of you, your fear is that God has been asking you to do something for a long time, and you just keep kicking the can down the street and not being obedient to what he's asking you to do. Folks, no matter what it is, it is always good to name the fear. It's important to write it down. That's why one of the things that I try to do daily is when I'm fearful about something, I write it in my journal, and when you write it and you name what it is, then all of a sudden there isn't as much control that it has on your life. But fear is something that every single one of us struggle with. Folks, what is your fear this Christmas? If you can name it, if you can write it down, if you can own it and say, God, I need you to be my shepherd to help me through this. He promises, he promises, I will be with you in your fears. So one of the thieves is fear, and yet God says, hey, I'll be with you. The second one is this, God is for you in your failures. God is for you in your fears, and he's for you in your failures. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm a kind of goal-driven person. So I wake up a lot in the morning, and I'm like, hey, this is my goal. This is what I want to do. This is my desire. Maybe you're that way as well. Maybe it's with work. Maybe it's with your family. Maybe it's with your friendships. Maybe it's with your finances. But if you're like me, sometimes I have this goal that I really want to work out and I don't meet the goal. That ever happened to you before? You have a goal in your life that you want it to happen, but it doesn't quite work out. Maybe that happened to you this week. You had a conversation with your son or daughter. You were hoping to be kind of straight and like, hey, this is the way it's going to be. And then all of a sudden, you just started yelling at them. And it got worse and it got heated and everything. And you're like, ah, I didn't meet the goal. Maybe you were given a work assignment, and you were so excited about it. You're like, oh, they're giving this to me. And you worked all week, and you got to the end of the week, and the reality is you couldn't deliver. You fell short. In high school, uh, I played on my high school team. There were 1,500 people in the school, 
and uh, there were a whole bunch of guys that tried out, and I made the team, and I think we have a picture of me. Look at that stud. Look how high those shorts are, folks, you know. But uh, I made the team. Now, truth be told, I did more time on the bench (laughs) than I ever did in the game. This was where my seat was most of the time. I was what you call a practice player. And a practice player makes all the other players better. You just never get into the game. And so that's who I was. I was a practice player. And I sat on this bench for most of the fall of 1988. But in 1989, in January, all of a sudden, Coach Buck looks down and goes, Bunch, get in the game. I'm like, wait, who are you talking? A bunch of people need to go in? Or No, 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 no. Like you, Chris Bunch, get in the game. So I rush and I get in the game and we were playing lapel and we killed them and I had my career high, eight points. Not bad. Look at some of you are like, ah, I didn't know you had it in you bunch, you know. And so then the next day, it was the game of the week. And this is when they would put that game on cable and everybody would watch the game. And we were playing Alexandria. And again, I'm sitting on this bench And this time, though, when he said, bunch, I was like, he's talking to me, you know. And so I run into the game, and I wish I had footage for you, because I do. But I couldn't get it off a VHS tape, you know what I mean? And so it is what it is. But anyways, I get in the game, I score five points, uh, I come up and and I do a double pump and shoot it, and a three-point play, it's like everything. And that weekend was like one of the highest uh, moments of my life. I mean, I just loved it. And so that next week, I'm, all, I'm on like cloud nine, and I'm so excited. We're playing Lafayette Jeff, and I'm sitting on the bench again when all of a sudden the name, Bunch, get in there. I get in the game, and I'm all ready. And the coach of the other team changed their defense from half court to full court press. Now, what that means is, is that they guard you kind of as close as a lion to a wildebeest. I think we have a picture of it, okay? Now, this was the problem with that game. I was the wildebeest. And they took the ball away from me. They, uh, I passed it to the wrong people. I dribbled it off my foot. I mean, it was just horrible. And the coach took me out of the game, and Coach Buck cussed me out up and down, all over the place. He said everything that day except, bunch, get in there. Now, the problem with that game was, for the rest of the year, is I didn't have a short-term memory. The rest of the year, I was always fearful about dribbling the ball or distributing the ball, and I ended up sitting on the same bench for the rest of the year. One of the things that I've learned about professional athletes is that they have short-term memories. They throw an interception, they forget about it, they go on. They miss a shot, they forget about it, they go on. They just have this ability to not allow the failures in their life to define them. They forgive themselves very quickly. For some of you, that's the biggest struggle you have. You can't forgive yourself. And so you don't have short-term memories. You have memories that go way back in time. But there is someone who does have a short-term memory, and it's God himself. You see, every single time you mess up and you fail, every time you can't break the full-court press, in the midst of all of that, he says, your failure doesn't define you. I define you. And the question is, will you go through life with a short-term memory? Because you have a God who is that way. A couple weeks ago, uh, I uh, had invited a couple in our church to go for breakfast at Bob Evans. And I sent a text, and I gave them two dates. And they sent a date back, but for some reason, I don't know why, The date that they sent back, I didn't put that date in my calendar. I put the other date in my calendar. And so Wednesday morning, 
comes, and uh, I'm running the kids all around. I had a meeting that morning, and I didn't even hear the first two texts. And then finally, I got a third text, and all of these, this is what it read. Are we, maybe, yeah, are we still meeting this morning? And then the second one came. We're here at Bob Evans on McGalliard. Last one. Hope is all, all okay. We are going to order. And by the time I got all of these texts, we were supposed to meet at 8.30, and now it's 9 o'clock, and I felt horrible. I felt like the biggest failure in the world. And so I picked up the phone, I called them, and, and apologized profusely. And then the rest of the day, the thief of failure came And for the next few hours, that's how I felt. I felt so bad, actually, that later in the afternoon, I went to Bob Evans. I purchased a gift card. I wrote an apology, put it in the card, and mailed it to them. Now, this is what I know about our church. What some of you are going to do right now is, you're going to call me sometime this week. Don't think I don't know. And you're going to be like, bunch, you missed this meeting. And, you know, whatever it was. But here's the thing, folks. Some of you might look at that and you're like, ah, it's no big deal, just move on. But for me, a person who struggled with being on time my, during my life and making sure that I never missed things, and I've done so well and I've improved in so many ways, when something like this happened, I felt like a total, total failure. And later that day, I'm preparing it's interesting i was preparing for this message this particular point and i'm feeling like such a failure when all of a sudden i get a whisper from god not audibly but just in my spirit practice what you preach why is it that it's okay for you to tell other people it's okay to fail but you yourself can't chris i want you to know your identity is not as a failure. You failed. You're the guy that stood up this couple and they were there. Yeah, that's true. You failed, but it does not define who you are. And this is a point about failure, and it's this. Failure is an event, never a person. Failure is always defined as an event, but failure is not a person. I mean, I might have failed, but I'm not a failure. Folks, what do you do when you fail? Do you do like I did in that instance and beat yourself up? What's the la- when's the last time that you actually failed? Some of you just never take risk in your life, so you never fail at anything, but you're not experiencing life. Folks, I just want to tell you, if you haven't failed at something recently in your life, you need to try. Because failure often can be the greatest gift that we have to remind us that there is a good shepherd who cares for me and is with me. I have the feeling that some of you think, well, You know, the only way that God's going to be with me and for me is if I do certain things. But once I fail, then he walks away from me. You have this image of that's what God's like. I have this sense that for some of you, maybe you failed this week. Maybe a conversation that with your son or daughter just didn't quite go the way that you wanted. Maybe it was a moment of weakness with a co-worker. Maybe the failure was about avoiding your spouse and having a particular conversation. I want to kind of give you an illustration of how you should understand how to deal with failure. If you would, I'd like you to imagine that right now you are at the airport at the baggage claim. You're all done with your flight. You're tired. You get there. You're waiting And you're waiting for the bag to come off. And as you're watching the conveyor belt come down, what you notice is that the very first luggage is yours. And you're like, oh, the Lord has shined upon me. 
The only problem is you are so far away and you are like congested with all of these people around you that you can't get to your bag. And you're like trying to push your way and you just see the bag keep going around and around. You're like, ah, and you're finally like running after it. Let me just tell you something right now. Just wait for it to come back around again. Don't be a fool. Just let for it to come back around again. Now, here's what I want to tell you. If you have experienced failure this week in some area of your life, don't get stuck in it. Don't run away from it. Recognize that, guess what? It's going to come back around again. And you'll have a chance to pick up whatever that is and to try to make things right. A conversation that you had with your kid that didn't go so well. Give it some space and time. It'll come back around again and have the conversation. Maybe with a spouse or a coworker, It'll come back around. It'll be okay. Don't hide from it. Don't be the person who, you know, like keeps running around the whole time, around and around. Don't forget about your baggage. I mean, don't be that person who forgets it and then some guy has to tag it and then eventually they have to take it to your house. Don't do that. Get it when it comes back around again. And when you realize this, please, please understand that God is for you in your failures. There is one who is cheerleading, rooting you on, saying, that does not define you. I define you. And Jesus is saying, you're good. You're enough. You're whole. I'm here. The season of Christmas is about me coming to you to let you know that I'm not just with you. I'm actually for you no matter what you're going through. And when those circumstances hit your life, when the unexpected drops into your lap, it's when the world is falling apart that God is still for you. That's why I love David so much. He understood it. David was the kind of guy who realized that, yeah, I was named a man after God's own heart. The only person in the whole Bible who took that title, a man after God's own heart. And he was this giant defeater. And he wrote like half of the Psalms in the songbook of the Bible. But David also had this huge broken past where there were tons of failures. And yet he would crawl back to God each time. And he would be honest and he would say exactly what he was thinking. In one of the stories, David has this group of people who were beginning to say terrible things about them. Have you ever been there before? Have you ever had people in your life say some terrible things about you so he has this group of people that's trying to take him down and this is what david writes in psalm 56 he says this my enemies will turn back when i call for help by this i will know that what what's it say god is for me god is for me in the face of my struggle, in the face of the injustice and the things that they're saying about me, I know that when I call upon God for help, he's going to help me and God is for me. God's going to do something that I don't see right now. He's making a way. He's working it out. He is the way maker. He is the miracle worker. He is the promise keeper. He is the light in the darkness. He's working when I don't see. Then in the next verse, Further down, David says these words, For you delivered me from death and my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Now, let me ask you. Do you believe that God is with you in your failure? When the circumstances don't go exactly the way you expected them to be, do you believe that God is still there for you? Do you believe that he's your shepherd, that he's your advocate, that he is the one who is your deliverer? And every time that you experience any kind of failure, he promises, I will be there for you. And why? 
Well, Paul said it, right? Let's read it out loud again together, this next verse in Romans 8. Let's read it out loud together. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, this is the thing with that. It's a question. If God is for us, who can be against us? And some of you are like, I can tell you some people that are against me. Aunt so-and-so, uncle, grandpa, mom, dad, this person at work, that person at work, the neighbor who puts their leaves in my yard. You know, oh, that was me. But anyways, you know, whoever, just joking, whoever that is, no, I can think of someone. But there is one person, folks, who will never be against you, and that is God himself. You could actually start every single sentence of your life from now on with these words. God is for me. God is for me as I face Christmas. God is for me as I face these problems. God is for me as I have this conversation. God is for me. God is for me. God is for me. And the reason he's for you is because he created you. And he wants you to flourish in this thing called life. So God is for you in your fears. He's for you in your failures. And God also is for you in your struggles. God is for you in your struggles. Oh, we already did struggle. Did we already do struggle? All right, put that in. Struggles. That would be the quickest point I've ever had in my life. Right there. I don't know what happened there. But okay, we'll move on. But God is for you in your fears. God is for you in your struggles. He is for you whatever you're going through. And then finally, let's bring it all home. God is for you in your words. God is for you when you're going through your words. Now, this is the thing. Many people kind of wonder, how do you define worry? Like, what is worry? How is worry different than fear? Well, we all kind of understand that worry is kind of a concoction of things. That it's just this concoction. This is how worry kind of begins. Worry, first of all, you have this helpless feeling. Worry comes to you and you feel so helpless about it. And because of this helpless feeling, you actually decide that, you know what, Uh, I am going to look for some help with this helpless feeling. And do you know what you do when you feel helpless? You Google. That's what you do. You feel helpless about something, and so then you Google whatever that issue is, and all of a sudden you get 8 million blog posts of how it's going to help your life. Now here's the problem with worry. Worry then makes you feel kind of helpless, and then you Google, and you get information overload. You get, like, all of these responses of how you're supposed to respond. The only problem is, with these 8 million responses, 4 million of them tell you to do one thing, and the other 4 million actually have conflicting information and tell you to do the absolute opposite. And then eventually you get to the point where you just feel uncertain with every single thing there is. You have this feeling of uncertainty. What is actually going to go on? For example, have any of you ever been sick before and you've gone to this? Don't raise your hand. Some of you are like, don't make me raise my hand. Yeah, all of a sudden you have these symptoms and you start thinking to yourself like, uh, I've been needing to go on WebMD. And you go on WebMD and then all of a sudden you see things and you're like, that's what I have. And after a little moment, you're like, I only have four years to live. And there's all of this like worry that builds itself up in the middle of it. And it all took place because you couldn't quite understand that God was for you. You know, worry, no matter what anyone says, is this downward spiral that just takes you deeper and deeper and deeper, and it wastes time. 
That's what worry does. Every time you worry, you waste time. So this morning, I want to ask you, what are you worried about? What is it? What is the thing in your life that you're worrying most about? Are you worrying about your finances? Are you worrying about whether or not you'll have a job after the first of the year? Are you worried about getting a job? Are you worried about your future? Are you worried about your kids? Are you worried about your family? Are you worried about whatever? Some of you just wake up in the morning and you start worrying. Worry, 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 worry all through the day. Folks, all worry does is it takes your attention away from the present moment and it takes you out somewhere to where you get distracted and disconnected from what God wants to do in your life. And Jesus said, this is what I think you should think about when it comes to worry. In Matthew chapter 6, he says this. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And then I love this next part. Look at this. Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Let me ask you, how many of you have ever worried, and then at the end of it, you're like, wow, I just got 25 hours this day instead of 24. Does worry ever add anything to your life? And of course, we know what the answer is. It's what? No. Folks, when you worry, you waste time. And when you waste time, you waste space that God is trying to help you to trust in and to lean into him. That story that I was telling you about where I failed to meet this couple for breakfast. When I was done for the next like three hours, I just kept worrying. I wonder if they're mad at me. I wonder if they're angry at me. I wonder if they'll go online and say, this is what our pastor did to us. Uh, I worried whether or not they would leave the church and, and be upset. And so all of these things are worrying. And finally in the afternoon, I did what I talked about last week. And I pulled myself away and I took a moment just to be still. And I said, God, this is what I'm worried about. I wrote it all down. And then all of a sudden I got this prompting, not uh, out loud, but just in my spirit, I want you to place your hand on your heart. And so I wasn't in public because I probably would have chickened out. But uh, I was, uh, you know, at my home, and I'm like, okay, I'll do this. No one's here. And so I put my hand on my heart. And then all of a sudden, I just got this really small phrase that came to me, which I think it was from God. And it said this, my heart is in your heart. Why? Are you worrying? And I just kept saying that. My heart is in your heart. Why are you worrying? God, your heart is in my heart. Why am I worrying? And I got up from that moment and I chose not to worry anymore. At least for the rest of that day. Because this is the thing, folks. It's chronic for some of us to wake up and be worried about whatever that is. And we need to realize it does not add any time to our day. One of my favorite uh, passages is further on in Philippians chapter 4. And this is what Paul says. The Lord is near. That's what Christmas is all about, folks. It, it's God coming down to earth. He's near. The Lord is with us. He's right here. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God. Think about that. Once I give all that to him, then the peace of God, which transcends all my understanding, all my worry, goes away. I have peace with God. Will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Folks, 
Folks, if you're in a season of worry right now, you're just overwhelmed by it. God is inviting you to come to Him. Bring everything to Him. And this is the thing. He doesn't get tired of it. He's not like, oh, you're bringing this again? I don't want to. Why aren't you over that yet? He doesn't get annoyed. He doesn't get frustrated. He doesn't get irritated. He's never angry at you. I want you to know that God is there in your worries. And he wants to give you peace that transcends what you're going through. Because he's near, he's close, he's as close as your heart
today. If uh, I haven't had a chance to meet you, we'd love to meet you. And I invite you to come down. God, today uh, we come and we're getting ready, thinking what's next on our agenda. But I pray right now, God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you'd help people to like shake out whatever it is that they're thinking is next and they would have a moment with you. And I pray right now, God, that you would remind people wherever they're at, everybody who said that prayer for the first time. Welcome to the kingdom of God. And uh, if, you would, if you did pray for the first time, please come up. We have a free gift for you, a Bible. Otherwise, have a great week and know that you're loved in this place. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>